verse 11, Mark 11 tells us, Jesus went into into Jerusalem and into the temple. So when he had looked around at all things, as the hour was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. And the next day, when they had come out of Beth, from Bethany, he was hungry. And seeing from afar a fig tree having leaves, he went to see if perhaps he would find something on it. And when he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for it was not the season for figs. In response, Jesus said to it, Let no one eat fruit from you ever again. And his disciples heard it. So Jesus has just come into Jerusalem in what we call the triumphal entry. The crowds are shouting and calling out, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And blessed is the kingdom of our father David that comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. They were expecting and desiring that he set up the kingdom of David at this time. But this was not a triumphal entry. Soon the people and the leaders would be reviling and rejecting him. But he was presenting himself to Israel as their Messiah and their Passover lamb of sacrifice for their sins. He was not making a triumphal entry. But the next week, well really later this week, early in the morning after the Sabbath, he was going to make a triumphal exit. An exit from the grave, that is. Over in Colossians chapter 2, we read in verse 11, it says, In Him you were also circumcised in Jesus with the circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the sins of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, buried with Him in baptism, in which you also were raised with Him through faith in the working of God who raised Him from the dead. And you being dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, He has made alive together with Him having forgiven you all trespasses. And so this is what uh, regeneration is and, and it's what baptism is all about, the cutting away the flesh of the heart, um, being born again by the Spirit, making you alive together, having forgiven you all trespasses. And it says he has wiped out the handwriting of requirements that was against us, which was contrary to us, and he has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. This is a picture Paul gives us from the um, legal system of the day. When someone was incarcerated, their offenses would be written out on a script and it would be nailed to the door of their prison cell. And then, you're probably familiar with it, when they had fulfilled their sentence, whatever it was, if they were able to fulfill the sentence, then it would be written on their uh, paper, paid in full, or it is finished. That's the term the term that's used, the same words that Jesus spoke on the cross. So he's taken those, uh, the handwriting of requirements against us, all of our sins and shortcomings, and he nailed it to his cross. And it says he, in verse 15, having disarmed principalities and powers, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them in it. This is his triumphal exit from the grave. He triumphed over all these principalities and powers and so we're talking about the powers of darkness. He made a public spectacle of them through his resurrection. They were expecting him to stay dead. Of course he didn't. So Jesus' triumph is his victory won on the cross. 
This was a perceived defeat, but he accomplished in the cross exactly the purpose for which he has come into the world. And he was raised to newness of life, never to die again. And he shares his victory to all who trust him for salvation. Now, not too long in the future, in the near future, our future, there are some events that have to take place first. But not too far in the near future, he will make his true triumphal entry or re-entry, really, when he comes with the clouds of heaven to judge the world and set up his kingdom, which shall never end. This will put the return of space shuttles or other aircraft to shame. As he comes to Jerusalem, Jesus goes into the temple and he looks around at everything. We can only speculate as to the thoughts of Jesus as he comes to the temple where his father has placed his presence and his name. And as he knows all that will take place in this place in the very near future. In Luke 19.41, we're told as he drew near to the city of Jerusalem, he saw the city and he wept over it. This, he was not reveling in his entry as the people were crying Hosanna. He was sorrowful as he looked over the city and he warns them of the things to come. So it's evening then and so Jesus departs from the city and comes to Bethany where he spends the night with the twelve. Uh, we don't know, you know, we know that Martha's house was in Bethany and, and Mary and Lazarus were there. Jesus had already raised Lazarus from the dead. Uh, we don't know if he went back to stay at their house. Some some people say no, he didn't. He didn't stay at Martha's house because if he had stayed there, he wouldn't have been hungry the next morning when he headed back to Jerusalem because she would have been up before dawn preparing this big breakfast, you know. But we don't know where he stayed. And you know, one instance it says he went to the Mount of Olivet, and he, so he may have spent the night just there in the open in the garden. So in the morning, Jesus goes again to Jerusalem and we are told that he's hungry and he sees a fig tree afar off. He sees this fig tree from afar and he comes near to see if there is any fruit on it. This event is highly typological. It's historical, but there is much typology here. He's illustrating for us the state of Israel and his relationship to her at this point in time. She is far off from him as he is from this tree. So, uh, you know, he talks about their, their hearts being far from him. He's told them this a number of times. That they, they come near him with their lips, but it's, it's not in their heart. It's not coming from their heart. I believe the fig tree represents Israel in the scriptures. Not always, but certainly here and clearly in some other places. <coughs> Excuse me. Jesus is looking for fruit. But the fruit that Israel was created to bring forth to God is what he's looking for. And they have not been bearing fruit for him. Fig trees are just trees. They don't have a choice about whether to bear figs or not. It's a natural process that either succeeds or fails, as with all fruit-bearing plants. Many factors are involved. But Israel is not just a tree. They can choose to serve God and be fruit-bearing or not. It's the same way with the church. This fig tree has leaves. There's some life. It's not 
completely dead. But there's no fruit. The one thing Jesus is looking for, the one thing that he is hoping for, is not there. Over in Luke chapter 13, Jesus tells a parable. And we'll read in verse 1 to get some, some background because this is why he's telling the parable. It says, There were present at that season some who told him about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. And Jesus answered and said to them, Do you suppose that these Galileans were worse sinners than all other Galileans because they suffered such things? And a lot of people did think that. Boy, those guys must have really, you know, incurred the wrath of God. And Jesus says, I tell you, no. But unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Or those 18 on whom the tower in Siloam fell and killed them, do you think that they were worse sinners than all other men who dwelt in Jerusalem? I tell you, no, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. And then he tells them this parable. A certain man had a fig tree planted in his vineyard, and he came seeking fruit on it and found none. I think that's interesting. He plants a fig tree in his vineyard. That's where you would plant the vines, right? (laughs) But he plants this fig tree there. And we know that Israel is also spoken of as being the vineyard, vineyard of the Lord. And so a certain man has this fig tree planted in his vineyard, and he came seeking fruit on it, and he found none. Wow, that's what just happened with Jesus. And he says to the keeper of his vineyard, Look, for three years I've come seeking fruit on this fig tree and find none. Interesting, about a three-year period there where he's been checking it out. Cut it down. Why does it use up the ground? And he answers and says to him, Sir, let it alone this year. It'll also until I dig around it and fertilize it. And if it bears fruit, well. But if not, after that, you can cut it down. So there's this fig tree not bearing fruit and, you know, it's just taking up space. Once again, we see the desire for fruit bearing. That's the ultimate purpose of the fruit bearing plant, is to bear fruit. But there is none. No fruit. But he's long-suffering as the farmer. He's patiently waiting for the fruit. We're told in... Uh, James chapter 5 and verse 7, he says, uh, second part of that verse, See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, waiting patiently for it until it receives the early and latter rain. And God was very patient with Israel, waiting for them to bring forth this fruit. Over in Isaiah chapter 5, we see this long-suffering of God. And this is where God speaks of Israel as the vineyard. Um, vineyard also represents Israel not in every instance that you read of a vineyard but in many places he compares Israel to this vineyard and we'll see the parable of Jesus where he talks about God's vineyard that he's planted but in Isaiah here um, chapter 5 verse 1 says now let me sing to my well beloved a song of my beloved regarding his vineyard my well beloved has a vineyard on a very fruitful hill Starts out pretty, pretty amazing. You know, I'm gonna sing this. It's basically a love song. It says he dug it up and cleared out its stones and planted it with the choicest vine. He built a tower in its midst and also made a wine press in it. So he expected it to bring forth good grapes, but it brought forth wild grapes. 
And now, O inhabitants of Jerusalem and men of Judah, judge please between me and my vineyard. What more could have been done to my vineyard that I have not done in it? God did everything He could from His His side, waiting for that response of good grapes. I will take away its hedge, He says. It shall be burned and break down its wall and it shall be trampled down. Now, Isaiah is speaking of the coming um, judgment you know, when Babylon would come in, but very similar to the instance again in the first century. I will lay it waste. It shall not be pruned or dug, but there shall come up briars and thorns. I will also command the clouds that they rain no rain on it. For the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel, he says. And the men of Judah are his pleasant plant. He looked for justice, but behold, oppression. For righteousness, but behold, a cry for help. We see the fruit he's looking for. Justice. But what are the, what's he getting instead? Oppression. He's looking for righteousness, but instead he's hearing cries for help. If it doesn't bear fruit, the owner says of this fig tree, it's just using up the ground. It's wasting space in his vineyard. That's a big ouch. I think they perceive what Jesus is saying here, what he's talking about. Jesus pronounces a curse upon this fig tree. Let no one eat fruit from you ever again. But we're also told it was not the season for figs. Is Jesus being unjust? Is it reasonable to expect or demand fruit from a, from a fig tree when it is not even the right time for figs? It's too early in the year for figs, at least the, the main crop of figs. This is where Israel differs from the fig tree. A couple of things here. The fig tree has a season. Israel was to bear fruit to God continually, to bring forth fruit to God year by year. Jesus had to use a fig tree out of season for his visual parable so that it would not have any figs. But there is something more. William MacDonald points out the situation with fig trees in the Bible lands. They produced an early edible fruit before the leaves appeared. So there would be small figs that would appear on the fig tree before the leaves. And so when the leaves were present, a person might expect to find some of these figs upon the tree. These leaves were a harbinger of the regular crop in these small figs. and uh, It's here described as the season for figs. So if no early figs appeared, it was a sign that there would be no regular crop later on. You never got a later crop if you didn't have these early figs. When Jesus came to the nation of Israel, there were leaves which speak of profession, but there was no fruit for God. This was promise without fulfillment, profession without reality. He, the fig tree's advertising. We got leaves, but there was only leaves there. So when Jesus came to the nation of Israel, there were leaves which speak of profession, but there was no fruit for God. Jesus was hungry for fruit from the nation. And because there was no early fruit, he knew that there would be no later fruit from that unbelieving people. And so he cursed the fig tree. This pre-pictured the judgment which was to fall on Israel in A.D. 70. Well, this pronouncement told in a parable here is spoken of by Jesus straightforwardly in Matthew chapter 21, where he talks about, it's a parable of the vineyard. 
in verse 33 of Matthew 21, he says here another parable. There was a certain landowner who planted a vineyard and set a hedge around it, dug a wine press in it, and built a tower. And he leased it to vine dressers and went into a far country. Now when vintage time drew near, he sent his servants to the vine dressers that they might receive its fruit. And the vine dressers took his servants, beat one, killed one, stoned another. Again, he sent other servants more than the first, and they did likewise to them. Then, last of all, he sent his son to them, saying, They will respect my son. But when the vine dressers saw the son, they said among themselves, This is the heir. Come, let us kill him and seize his inheritance. This is what we're seeing at this point in the Gospels. Yes. They are thinking, Jesus is going to take our place. Everybody's going after him. We have to get rid of this guy. And that's what's happening here. This is the heir. Come, let us kill him and seize his inheritance. So they took him and cast him out of the vineyard and killed him. Therefore, when the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to those vine dressers? And they said to him, He'll destroy those wicked men miserably and lease his vineyard to other vine dressers who will render to him the fruits in their season. That was a reasonable answer, logical. And Jesus said to them, Have you never read in the Scriptures the stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone that this was the Lord's doing and it is marvelous in our eyes. This part of Psalm 118 which we saw that they would sing when uh, they would come up for the feast to Jerusalem and, and they it would be a, a psalm they would sing around the, the time of the Passover. And then Jesus says this in verse 43, Therefore I say to you, the kingdom of God will be taken from you and given to a nation bearing the fruits of it. And whoever falls on this stone will be broken, but on whomever it falls, it will grind him to powder. It's better to be broken on the stone than to be ground to powder. And when the chief priests and Pharisees heard this par- his parables, they perceived that he was speaking of them. They, they got the message. And when they sought to lay hands on him, they feared the multitudes because they took him for a prophet, which he definitely is. So we have the parable of the vineyard. This is the same curse as pronounced upon this fig tree. Uh, this this parable he told shortly after the cleansing of the temple, which is still upcoming in our passage here in Mark. He says that you know that's going to be taken away from you and given to a nation who will bear the fruits of it, the kingdom. Now, who is this nation? It's the church. First Peter two nine. You are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, his own special people that you may proclaim the praises of Him who called you out of darkness into His marvelous light. The church is to bear fruit to God. Now, Israel will bear fruit to God once again. Let's not make a mistake about that. Many teach that God's done with Israel forever. But that is not what He says in His Holy Word. His Word that never fails. That is much of what the Millennial Kingdom is about. God fulfilling the promises to and through Israel. In Jeremiah chapter 31, verses 33, or 35 through 37, he says, Thus says the Lord who gives the sun for a light by day, the ordinance of the moon and the stars for a light by night, who disturbs the sea and its waves roar, 
The Lord of hosts is his name. If those ordinances depart from before me, says the Lord, then the seed of Israel shall also cease from being a nation before me forever. Thus says the Lord, if heaven above can be measured and the foundations of the earth searched out beneath, I will also cast off all the seed of Israel for all that they have done, says the Lord. So he's not going to do that until the sun and the moon go away. And that's like new heavens, new earth. Uh, he says basically the same thing in Jeremiah 33, 20 through 26, if you want to read that later. Over in Amos chapter 9, verses 14 and 15, a passage that I read a lot. I like it a lot. In verse 14, he says, I'll bring back the captives of my people Israel. They shall build the waste cities and inhabit them. They shall plant vineyards and drink wine from them. They shall also make gardens and eat fruit from them. And we might think, well, he's probably talking about coming back from Babylon. You know? But the next verse, he says, I will plant them in their land and no longer shall they be pulled up from the land I have given them, says the Lord your God. It, he's not talking about that time frame. He's talking about very possibly our time period when Israel has come back. They're planted in their land. I think it's likely that they're not going to be pulled up again from their land. So Paul cautions us in Romans chapter 11, we who are particularly Gentile believers, in Romans 11 and verse 16, he says this, If the first fruit's holy, the lump is also holy, and if the root is holy, so are the branches. And if some of the branches were broken off, and you being a wild olive tree were grafted in among them, and with them became a partaker of the root and fatness of the olive tree, do not boast against the branches. So, He's saying Israel's still the root, you know, and you've been grafted into that tree. Uh, olive tree is another plant that God uses that He likens to Israel, and He does so here with the olive tree. He says, "But if you do boast, remember that you do not support the root, but the root supports you." You will say, "Then branches were broken off that I might be grafted in." Hey, big deal. Well said. Because of unbelief they were broken off, and you stand by faith. Do not be haughty, but fear. But if God did not spare the natural branches, he may not spare you either. Therefore, consider the goodness and severity of God. On those who fail, severity. But toward you, goodness. If you continue in his goodness, otherwise you also will be cut off. And they also, if they do not continue in unbelief. So he's talking about groups of people here will be grafted in, for God is able to graft them in again. And He will graft them in again. For if you were cut out of the olive tree, which is wild by nature, and were grafted contrary to nature into a cultivated olive tree, how much more will these who are natural branches be grafted into their own olive tree? Um, God is not finished with Israel. And thank God He's not finished with us. Over in John 15, Jesus talks about He's still looking for fruit. This is still what he's desiring. Uh, John 15, verse 1, he says, I'm the true vine. My father is the vine dresser. Every branch of me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And that can also be translated, he lifts up. Uh, the vines in Israel would generally run along the ground. They didn't use the trestles and things. So it gets down in the dirt and the vine dresser would come and he'd lift it up so that it would not rot. 
Every branch of me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that bears fruit, he prunes or cleanses that it may bear more fruit. You're already clean because of the word which I've spoken to you. Abide in me and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. That's the only way we can be fruit bearing. I'm the vine, you're the branches. He who abides in me and I in him bears much fruit. For without me you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he's cast out as a branch and is withered, and they gather them and throw them into the fire, and they are burned. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, you will ask what you desire, and it shall be done for you. By this my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit, and so you will be my disciples. We're, we're supposed to bear that fruit because we're that new nation. And down in verse 16 of John 15, he says, You didn't choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit, and that your fruit should remain, that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give you. Of course, he's spending this time speaking particularly to his apostles, but we're descendants of those apostles. Over in Galatians chapter 5, we see some of the fruit we're to bear, the fruit of the Spirit. Uh, Verse 22, the fruit of the Spirit's love, joy, peace, long-suffering, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such there is no law. In that passage, God, Paul contrasts, God does too, uh, the fruit of the Spirit with the works of the flesh. The works, uh, works it's effort. Fruit is nature. Works is me. Fruit is abiding in Him. In Ephesians chapter 5 and verse 9, Paul writes, The fruit of the Spirit is in all goodness, righteousness, and truth. That's the kind of fruit that God is looking for. So these things, it includes the fruit of, fruit of character, which we saw, the fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, etc. It includes the fruit of obedience, but not of obligation or of keeping of rules for merit, but it's an obedience born by a change of nature and a restored relationship. There are many people who will strive to obey, but they're striving to obey in the flesh rather than abiding in the vine. And through that change of their heart, allowing God to change their heart and their nature, that's when the desire for obedience comes rather than, oh man, I've got to do this, you know. In Romans 6, 16-18, Paul writes, Do you not know that to whom you present yourselves slaves to obey, that you are that one slaves whom you obey, whether of sin leading to death or of obedience leading to righteousness? But God be thanked that though you were slaves of sin, yet you obeyed from the heart that form of doctrine to which you were delivered, obedience. And having been set free from sin, you became slaves of righteousness. In verse 22, he says, But now, having been set free from sin and having become slaves of God, you have your fruit to holiness and the end everlasting life. So that fruit comes forth as we follow and obey Him. In Romans chapter 7 and verse 4, he says, Therefore, my brethren, you also have become dead to the law through the body of Christ, that you may be married to another, to him who was raised from the dead, Why? So that you should bear fruit to God. 
So it includes the fruit of character, the fruit of obedience. It includes the fruit of righteousness, that is, righteous acts and good works. Titus 3.8, Paul writes, This is a faithful saying, and these things I want you to affirm constantly, Timothy, that those who have believed in God should be careful to maintain good works. These things are good and profitable to men. And later in chapter 3, verse 14, he says, Let our people also learn to maintain good works to meet urgent needs that they may not be unfruitful. Part of our fruitfulness is those good deeds that God gives us to carry out. It includes the fruit of reproduction. We know the parable of the sower where the sower goes out and sows the seed. Where some falls on good ground, it yields a crop, some hundredfold, some sixty, and some thirty. It's the work of the Lord as the word goes forth, bringing, reaping a harvest to Him. And it includes the fruit of praise, worship, and thanksgiving coming from our hearts from the inner man. Hebrews 13.15, he says, Therefore by Him, Jesus, let us continually offer the sacrifice of praise to God, that is, the fruit of our lips, giving thanks to His name. So this fruit-bearing nature sums up our entire purpose in the world. Over in Psalms chapter 1, verses 1-3, through 3, The psalmist writes, Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor stands in the path of sinners, nor sits in the seat of the scornful. He doesn't take advice from the world. He doesn't follow the world. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law he meditates day and night. He shall be like a tree planted by the rivers of water that brings forth its fruit in its season, whose leaf also shall not wither, and whatever he does shall prosper. Because of his rejection of the things of the world and his delight in the law of the Lord, he's going to be like a tree that's always refreshed, has water. You know, his, his roots are going down into the area where the water is and the leaf will not wither. Everything he does will prosper. Jeremiah says something very similar in Jeremiah 17, verses 7 and 8. Where he says, Blessed is the man who trusts in the Lord and whose hope is in the Lord. For he shall be like a tree planted by the water. So he's, he's immersed in the Lord, trusting, hoping. His, he'll be like that tree planted by the waters which spreads out its, its roots by the river and he will not fear when heat comes because he's got a source. But its leaf will be green and he will not be anxious in the year of drought. Oh man, things are drying up. Getting worried. Nor will he cease from yielding fruit. So Jesus comes to this fig tree, no fruit, he curses it. He's gathering his little figs, his fig bearers, so that they might produce produce fruit. So his disciples hear him cursing this fig tree and uh, we're told in verse uh, Mark 11, verse 15, then it says, They came to Jerusalem, and Jesus went into the temple and began to drive out those who bought and sold in the temple. He overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold doves. And he would not allow anyone to carry wares through the temple. And then he taught, saying to them, Is it not written, My house shall be called a house of prayer for all nations, but you have made it a den of thieves? 
And the scribes and the chief priests heard it and sought how they might destroy him. For they feared him because all the people were astonished at his teaching. And when evening had come, he went out of the city. So he comes back to Jerusalem after passing by the fig tree and cursing it. He enters the temple and he begins to remove the merchants and the money changers. He didn't allow any merchandise to be brought into the temple or carried through the temple. Uh, Many people were beginning to use the temple as a shortcut. So instead of having to go around, you could carry your stuff through, you know, the the court of the Gentiles and get to the other side. So, you know, that was not to be the temple of God. The temple of God was not to be a marketplace. Uh, but there was more to it than this. It was actually a marketplace that was corrupt and where fraud was being committed. It was not even an honest marketplace nor a merciful marketplace. If they were going to have a marketplace, at least it could be a godly marketplace, but it was not. Uh, For example, sacrifices that were brought by the people as an atonement for sin or a consecration of their person had to be ceremonially perfect. No blemishes or flaws. And God describes the types of problems he was prohibiting in uh, Leviticus 22, verses 23-24. He tells them, whatever has a defect, you shall not offer, for it shall not be acceptable on your behalf. Whoever offers a sacrifice of a peace offering to the Lord to fulfill his vow or a free will offering from the cattle or the sheep, it must be perfect to be accepted. There shall be no defect in it. Those that are blind or broken or maimed or have an ulcer or eczema or scabs, you shall not offer to the Lord, nor make an offering by fire of them on the altar to the Lord. Either a bull or a lamb that has any limb too long or too short, you may offer as a free will offering, but for a vow it shall not be accepted. You shall not offer to the Lord that what is bruised or crushed or torn or cut, nor shall you make any offering of them in your land. So these uh, animals were to be perfect specimens. None of these uh, significant types of defects. And he does allow them, you know, if the leg's too long or too short, he says you can do that as a free will offering. That's a thanksgiving offering to the Lord. And he was willing to accept those, but not for any kind of atonement for uh, the sins that they had done. And so, you know, we saw that this is the Passover taking place here. And we saw that um, the Jews would take the Passover lamb on the 10th. They would choose a lamb and they would sacrifice it on the 14th at twilight. And so during this period, they're examining this lamb, make sure it's, yeah, it looks like a good lamb, you know. It doesn't develop a tumor, you know, as days are going by. Um, and so, you know, Jesus is being examined now in this period of time that we're, we're going through. In Malachi, the, at the end of the Old Testament, Malachi chapter 1, verses 7 and 8, he, he tells them, You offer defiled food on my altar. This is the Lord speaking to the Jewish people. But, but you say, In what way have we defiled you? And he says, By saying the table of the Lord is contemptible. And when you offer the blind as a sacrifice, is it not evil? And when you offer the lame and sick, is it not evil? Offer it then to your governor. Would he be pleased with you? Would he accept you favorably? Hey, governor, I got this sick lamb. You know, I want to give it to you. Says the Lord of hosts. So, of course, the animal had to be a perfect 
physical specimen because the true Lamb of God who took away the sin of the world was perfect in every way. He had to be so to take our sin upon Himself. He could not have any sin of His own for which He must suffer death. Well, the way this worked is when someone would bring a sacrifice, it would be examined by the priest for suitability for sacrifice, that it would have no blemishes, but the priest would usually find some reason that the animal would be unacceptable. But they also provided a first-class animal without blemishes service. You could purchase an animal for sacrifice that was guaranteed to be acceptable, but the price was at a premium. Similarly, with the temple tax, the law said that each male would pay a half shekel into the treasury for the maintenance of the temple and its functions. This began back in Exodus 30 with the tabernacle, uh, where in verse 11, the Lord speaks to Moses, saying, When you take the census of the children of Israel for their number, then every man shall give a ransom for himself to the Lord. When you number them, that there may be no plague among you when you number them. This is what everyone among those who are numbered shall give, half a shekel, according to the shekel of the sanctuary. And it tells us the shekel is 20 geras, so that's a weight. The half shekel shall be an offering to the Lord. Everyone included among those who are numbered from 20 years old and above shall give an offering to the Lord. The rich shall not give more, and the poor shall not give less than half a shekel. They were all to be equal before the Lord. When you give an offering to the Lord to make atonement for yourselves. And you shall take the atonement money of the children of Israel and shall appoint it for the service of the tabernacle of meeting that it may be a memorial for the children of Israel before the Lord to make atonement for yourselves. Uh, you'll notice this is a flat tax. Half a shekel for everybody. You know, and I'm of opinion that that's the best kind of tax. Now, the initial tax instituted here under Moses was at the, time, the first census of Israel, but it became an annual tax. The tax at the time of Jesus could not be enforced by the Jews uh, due to Roman law. So technically, it was voluntary. You could do the, give the temple tax or not because it wasn't enforceable right, by the Jews. But the priest considered the failure to pay the tax annually a sin. Somebody referred to this as a temple guilt tax. So although this tax was payable in any equivalent value of silver, half shekel, the priest insisted on a particular coin. Although the official name of the temple tax coin was half a shekel, Jewish, Jewish sources record that the only coin type the priest acknowledged was the one called the uh, Tyrian shekel. That silver coin was minted by the Phoenician city of Tyre. Oh, the Tyrian shekel was the only one they would accept as payment for your temple tax. And, the, and research since has proved that the priests knew why they insisted on accepting only this currency, the Tyrian, Tyrian shekel. Unlike the Roman denarius, this shekel always had a high level of silver, between 90 and 95%. The Roman equivalent was only 80% silver. So they insisted on the Tyrian shekel because it was 90 or 95% silver. The Tyrian shekel also had the image of Baal or Beelzebub on it, but that wasn't a problem as long as it was 90 to 95% silver. 
And since the priests of the temple in Jerusalem accepted the temple tax only in this Tyrian currency, money changers around the temple offered their services, converting foreign money to this coin type. Apparently, the charge for this service was high. Uh, you would get about, it was about a 15% charge. You get 85% on the dollar for your value. Also, the animals that they sold were about twice the price of buying an animal outside the temple environs. Uh, but, of course, if you bought that animal, even though you know they would say, yeah, this is a perfect animal, then you're taking a risk on losing your investment there and having to still buy another animal. And, you know, it mentions to us here the, um, the doves. That was the offering of the poor people, right? And so the doves were also like double-priced uh, other animals. There were other animals there. Just Mark only mentions doves for us, but uh, we see in other uh, accounts that you know there were sheep and different animals that people could buy. But the very poor, all they could afford was the doves. You know, and they were fortunate to afford that. But then the prices jacked up. You know, double on them. So this is what Jesus is referring to when he says it's written, my house will be called a house of prayer, but you are making it a den of robbers. And in the enduring words of Barney Five, it's a racket. Over in Matthew 17, we find an instance concerning this temple tax. And in verse 24, it says, When they came to Capernaum, those who received the temple tax came to Peter and said, Does your teacher not pay the temple tax? And he said, Yes. And when he had come into the house, Jesus anticipated him, saying, What do you think, Simon? From whom do the kings of the earth take customs or taxes, from their sons or from strangers? And Peter said to him, From strangers. And Jesus said to him, Then the sons are free. And Peter saying, well, I told that guy, you know, that he paid the temple tax. Nevertheless, Jesus said, lest we offend them, go to the sea, cast in a hook, and take the fish that comes up first. When you've opened its mouth, you will find a piece of money. Take that and give it to them for you, me and you. So, um, he gets this fish on the line, pulls it out, and it has this coin in its mouth, which was just enough to pay the temple tax for Peter and Jesus, which was, a, I think it's mentioned as a four drachma coin somewhere else, which is the same equivalent as a shekel. So, and no doubt this was a Tyrian shekel. doesn't say that. So, you know, the temple tax is paid. Jesus says, lest we offend them. Jesus was not that concerned about offending them if it was a, a spiritual issue. This would not be the last time that a fish was attracted to something bright and shiny. In 2019, Britain's Sun newspaper had a cute story of how Christopher Eddington and his now fiance Sandra Bidgood from Rangby, England, were out fishing. And as they were cleaning the, fish, the two fish that they kept, Christopher found an engagement ring inside the one he was working on that the fish had previously swallowed. And he'd been planning to ask his girlfriend to marry him, but kept chickening out. I don't guess fishing out would, you know, he was chickening out, but finding the ring gave him the courage to go for it. He passed the fish on to his girlfriend to, fit, 
<laughs> to finish off. And when she squealed after seeing the ring, Christopher turned and proposed, and after a thorough cleaning, they even used it for the official engagement. But this story about the fish and the coin tells us something else about our relationship with Christ. Even though Peter had gotten himself into a pickle because of his own impetuousness, Jesus was prepared to bail the apostle out of his trouble. We're all going to make mistakes, and it's important for us to understand that God will not abandon us when we do. God is for us and with us in the good times and the bad, even when we blow it. Uh, Well, this is the second time that Jesus has done this temple cleansing. He did it at the beginning of his public ministry. Over in John chapter 2, verse 13, we read about this. The Passover of the Jews was at hand, and this is when Jesus just starting his public ministry. Jesus went up to Jerusalem for the Passover, and he found in the temple those who sold oxen and sheep and doves. So they got all these animals in there, and the money changers doing business. And when he had made a whip of cords, he drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and the oxen and poured out the, uh, the changers' money and overturned the tables. And you see him scrambling for that money as it rolls across. And Hey, that's mine going over there to that next door table. I got it. And he said to those who sold doves, take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of merchandise. Then his disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for your house has eaten me up. So the Jews answered and said to him, what sign do you show it to us since you do these things? And Jesus answered and said, destroy this temple. And in three days I will raise it up. Then the Jews said, it's taken 46 years to build this temple. And will you raise it up in three days? It wasn't quite finished yet at this point. They were still working on it. But he was speaking of the temple of his body. Therefore, when he had risen from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this to them. And they believed the scripture and the word which Jesus had said. So uh, he cleanses at the beginning. He's cleansing it here. He could have done it every year or monthly, probably daily, hourly. (laughs) The Jewish leaders were set in their exploitative ways. Now Jesus cleanses the temple. You know, our body is the temple of the Holy Spirit. He's going to be doing some cleansing there as well. And, you know, we need to be cleansed, don't we? Probably daily, maybe hourly, maybe sooner, but we want to keep short accounts with the Lord and keep ourselves in a clean place with Him because it's His blood that cleanses us from all sin. If we confess our sins, He's faithful and just to forgive us our sins. So this cleansing did not produce a permanent sanctification. He cleanses the temple in the beginning, comes back three years later and must cleanse it again. Jesus doesn't do this cleansing and then run for the hills. But he stays around. He begins to teach them why he's doing this. And we mentioned he doesn't let people carry things through the temple. He doesn't allow that which is sacred to be used for the sake of convenience. But in Jesus explaining why he's doing this, he quotes from passages of two prophets in making his point. Isaiah 56, 7, which says, even them, even them I will bring to my holy mountain and make them joyful in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings, their sacrifices will be accepted on my altar, for my house shall be called a house of prayer for all nations. 
That means those stinking Gentiles can come there and pray. And um, one thing, maybe later in my notes, one thing about this area where they were selling and carrying on all this activity, this was in the court of the Gentiles. They couldn't do it in inside the temple environments, environs uh, itself. So this was the court of the Gentiles. This was the only place where non-Jews could come to worship the Lord and see it. So we see that, you know, what a witness this is to them of what God is all about when they're out here gouging people and, and cheating them. And thank goodness we don't see that today anywhere. Jeremiah 7.11 is the other passage where it says, Has this house which is called by my name become a den of thieves in your eyes? Behold, I even I have seen it, says the Lord. So he was not um, oblivious to what they were doing. So they had this, this was set up in the outer court. Terrible witness to those who were not familiar with the God of the Jews as to what he was like. Money grubbers today are a terrible witness to Jesus. And many people cannot tell the difference between them and the genuine article. David Guzik says it's a sorry, shameful condition when the house of God becomes a place where unrepentant and active sinners can associate and hide. Well, this is the natural way of man, and only repentance can bring a course correction. Many or men sometimes do repent, and revival occurs, but sometimes they do not repent. They must continue on in their corruption their corrupt course and ultimately judgment must come. As we're told in Jeremiah 17.9, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? Search me, O God. See if there's any wicked way in me. Lead me in the way everlasting. Well, at this point, Matthew adds that the blind and the lame came to Jesus while he's after he's done this cleansing, and he heals them there in the temple. The children also come. This is Matthew 21, verses 14 through 16. The blind and lame come to him in the temple. He heals them. And when the chief priests and the scribes saw the wonderful things that he did, and the children crying out in the temple and saying, Hosanna to the Son of David, they were indignant. They were seeing him doing wonderful things, and they were indignant about it. And they said to him, Do you hear what these are saying? And Jesus said to them, Yes, have you never read out of the mouth of babes and nursing infants you have perfected praise? So Jesus continues to teach in this uh, situation. So the scribes and Pharisees become further determined to oppose Jesus. They seek to eliminate Him. He's causing too much disruption of the status quo. And the status quo was what kept them in power and in money. And that's what their lives were all about. So, uh, when evening comes, he goes out of the city. He, you know, he got there when it was sun was coming up. He left. And when evening has come, he spent the entire day, and he spends the next several days apparently in the city of Jerusalem. In Luke twenty-one thirty-seven, it says, "In the daytime he was teaching in the temple, but at night he went out and stayed on the mountain called Olivet." So it was proving time for the Lamb of God. He's there presenting himself. Examine me. Check me out. Can anyone here convince me of sin? And then he was prepared as the approved 
sacrifice for our sins uh, to go to the cross. So this is, we're in his, his last few days from this point before the cross. <clears throat> 